A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, including those from the worlds of literature, film, music and of course art, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Joan Jonas, one of the most significant and pioneering artists in the history of video and performance. Joan draws inspiration from a wealth of cultures and traditions, alluding to fairy tales and ancient myths, scientific study and art history, and brings them together in installations involving live action, drawing, music and sound and video. Joan was born in 1936 in New York and still lives in the city today. She studied art history at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts and sculpture first at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and then at Columbia University in New York. But she quickly rejected more orthodox sculptural practice to become one of the founding figures of performance and video in a boundary-breaking period in New York in the 1960s and 1970s. From her early pieces like Organic Honey's Visual Telepathy and Organic Honey's Vertical role, she immediately established a way of working that involved multiple disciplines and media. In both, a video camera, a porter pack that she had bought on an important visit to Japan, was immediately employed as a live element within the performance, and she also involved sculptural props, in this case mirrors, a regular material in her work, and made drawings. Thematically, in these pieces, she explored the nature of female gestures and archetypes, playing both herself and adopting the character of organic honey, involving a mask. Though often veiled or alluded to subtly, social and political subjects from feminism to war and climate change underpin Joan's installations. Indeed, so many of the formal and thematic aspects present from the start have continued to be cornerstones over more than 50 years. Joan's early performances happened in and around Soho in New York, which was almost unrecognisable then. Soho was largely empty and many artists like Joan were able to move into abandoned factory lofts and perform in them to peers and small audiences. Meanwhile, the Lower West Side and the docks around the Hudson River were, as Joan has said, places to explore through her art. In pieces like 1973's Song Delay, which features Joan alongside other key artists in the Soho scene like Gordon Matter-Clark and Carol Gooden, performing with props in the urban wastelands by the river. Joan's work grew steadily richer and more complex. Mirage from 1976 was her last black and white film, but pointed to the future with layered elements of video and performance and a sequence in which Joan made a series of blackboard drawings over and again before erasing each one. Drawing has been an integral discipline. As her materials expanded, so too did her references with myths and folk and fairy tales among them. The Juniper Tree from 1976 took a brutal story from the Brothers Grimm as its source. The Volcano Saga from the 1980s drew from the Icelandic folk epic the Laxdala Saga and Lines in the Sand from 2002 alluded to the Trojan War via the poetry of Hilda Doolittle. In the Volcano Saga, Joan harnessed the elemental landscapes of Iceland, connecting her exploration of female character and psyche to natural phenomena. And this too has been a fertile theme of inquiry across the decades. In recent years, she's produced extraordinary installations and performances relating to different aspects of the environment, from glaciers to marine biology, in which climate change has been an inevitable concern. Among the pieces is Reanimation, a performance that developed into an installation. The video element 
was shot in part on Norway's Lofoten Islands, with lyrical images of glaciers alongside sequences of Joan drawing with ink into the snow or with ice and ink on paper. More recently, Joan made Moving Off the Land, which focuses on the ocean as explored in diverse cultures over the course of history, typically bringing together performance, sculpture, drawings and video. For reanimation, Moving Off the Land and other projects made in the past two decades, Joan has collaborated with musicians like Jason Moran and Ikue Mori in transcendent performances and the sonic component of the installations that emerge from them. These often epic productions involve a poetic piecing together of disparate material and it's this layering with which I began our conversation. Almost since the start, when she first picked up a video camera, Joan has enriched and complicated her material through synthesising live action, objects, sound and the mediated image. What does this layering of material bring to the work? I think it began, you know, before I picked up a video camera, I was making these performances with mirrors in the late 60s. The performances themselves were kind of layered at different distances of the mirrors from the camera and the audience. It was for an audience, a live audience. And then when I got the porta pack at the end of the 60s and added the element of video, that was a natural occurrence. That then the video in relation to the performance was another layer. And then I began to see, that was very interesting to me, I could make a more complicated statement by having the video backdrop reflecting one thought, and then the video backdrop was, at first I used a live camera for some years, which played into the backdrop. So the audience saw a detail of the live performance in the background. But of course, one's perception of that is a little different. You know, each one had a different quality. So that's how it began. And then that interested me, so I've continued to work consciously with that idea, that structure. Absolutely. And in the book, which relates to your performances in Venice and then in Madrid, there's a very interesting text that we have all the way through the book where you divide the different aspects of what's going on. So you have the video, the live action, the sound and the text as a kind of scrolling text all the way through the book and it's really fascinating to see that and how precise it is but tell me about exactly how precise it is and how much scope there is for chance and well I tried to make it totally precise in other words I make those scripts they're called but they're written after I've done the performances and reached a certain point where I think it's finished and then I make them or write them by looking closely at the recordings of the performances and directly coordinating the different, like the sound and the movement and the text. How does that all come together on a horizontal line and coordinate on a vertical line? And I started making those scripts in the early 70s. Right. And that's really fascinating because, of course, you're drawing in, it's almost like a textual collage to a certain degree because you're drawing in material from other published sources, from literature and so on, but also, obviously, you're describing your own video material and your own movement. So it's a really fascinating combination of all those things. <laughs> yeah, I do. I try to describe as accurately, and you have to make it interesting. So, so I describe as accurately as possible my movements. And then the text is all text that's used in the performance. And the movements and the sound correspond to that. And in terms of 
where they sit with the work, the scripts? Do you see them as something that is attached to the work or do you see them as integrally part of the work? They're totally attached to my work. I mean, they're separate from the actual work itself, but they're a record of the work. And I wanted to have an accurate as possible record or script of the work. From the beginning, I wanted to somehow not, it's not preserved, but to have an accurate record of it so people could experience it. And then at some point, sometimes people take it up and they probably will try to do it themselves. And of course, I've had that experience a couple of times. Like there was a group in Italy that they didn't even base it on a script. They based it on just a performance video. And it was weird, but I found it interesting. But that's another aspect of it. And of course, the idea of restaging is absolutely part of the way that your work has developed over the years, isn't it? Because the way that you can go back to a piece and rework it or involve elements from one piece in another piece it seems to me that's a really fascinating texture in your career the way that you can return and revivify works or re-see them somehow yeah sometimes I take an old piece and I put it like there's a piece called disturbances which was shot in and above a swimming pool with women swimming underwater and when I was doing reanimation which was that was in 73 much more recently I wanted to show the idea of the world of ice melting and we were in a water world so I brought that into the piece and it, it worked in that respect so and it also interests me to take something and put it in another context because it changes it you know when you juxtapose it in a different way and so I don't always do that there's a piece called organic honey I've never gone back to that so the, some work I never reposition and other work I do sometimes is it because, to a certain extent, some works are more open-ended than others? In other words, a development suggests itself to you where you feel like, for instance, with Organic Honey, it's kind of closed, it's, it's done, sort of thing. Well, Organic Honey is such an iconic work and so uh, specifically figurative that I can't see it ever in relation to another work. But Mirage is a piece which is kind of open-ended and I've gone back to that for inspiration several times. Of course, Organic Honey... The whole idea of dressing up in costumes and disguise and wearing masks. Of course I do those, but it has to be an abstract element. It can't be so uh, particular as organic honey. And Mirage is one of my favorite. It's the last black and white video piece. And so it interests me to go back to that. And tell me about your own involvement in the work in terms of as a performer or as a character sometimes in the work. Obviously, at times you are utterly yourself, at times you play a role. And how important is that physical presence that you have in the work? Well, from the very beginning, I really began by transforming myself. And I didn't want to play myself ever. And I don't do that consciously. It's just sometimes I'm not disguised. But then through the years, I was always playing roles, mainly the role of the female in relation to fairy tales and so on, as an example. You know, how do I represent these female characters? And so I played that role like in the juniper tree. I play all the parts in one version of that. Lately, I have not really been doing that because I think as I got more and more at ease and I did so much performing, I didn't feel the need to do that. But, you know, it's something I could easily go back to. It's not a principle. I'm just about to do a performance in collaboration with Eiko Otaki. And in a way, we're both playing ourselves in relation to each other and in relation to our 
connection to Japan, which I have a strong connection to. I wanted to talk about drawing and drawing in particular as a kind of transformative act. It seems to me that drawing is always moving. It's obvious that the act of drawing is a moving thing, but it seems to me it's always transformative in your work. It's almost like you don't rest. You never simply return to the most obvious tools to do it for a start, but also you don't use drawing as a kind of crutch. It always feels like it's pushing it in another direction every time you use it. Well, I always try to find a way to use drawing It could relate to the meaning of the piece, the text. Like when I began to use video, I consciously drew in relation to the video camera, or I drew in relation to the audience, or I drew on a blackboard. I always try to find a way to draw that is transformative for the drawing. I do make drawings at home, autonomous drawings, a lot. But when I draw in a performance, the performance affects the way I draw, because I'm not thinking consciously, I'm just making the drawing. And the drawing has to be an integral part. It doesn't work. And I don't treat the drawings that I make as precious. I don't want the audience to say, oh, she's making a drawing, we have to save it. I do save my drawings, but I try not to show that in the performance. I can throw them on the floor. I use very good paper that can withstand being thrown around the room, and so on. I mean, there are other ways to think about it, but that's sort of basically my idea. And then, of course, with video, there's also a sense in which you're constantly pushing that form into different formats as well, in the sense that there's the My New Theatres, which seem to me to be a really fascinating aspect of the work because what you're doing is essentially condensing the video screen as well as at the same time in the installations expanding. So there's this curious relationship with scale and and that process of establishing how an image should manifest in the space. Yeah, well, at one point I thought, oh, I don't want to do these big video performances anymore. When I did my first My New Theater, I want to make miniature theaters that are small, that can be transported from place to place, that aren't so huge and complicated. So I designed the video boxes. They're like theater boxes. And I use them for other things too, but there's a series of My New Theaters, there's six of them. And in those, I consciously frame the action so it fits in the box. For instance, the edge of the box will correspond to the edge of a wall or something like that. So it's a very careful composition in relation to that space of the box. And then the idea that people stand there and they get close to it and they look into the box, all those elements interest me. Let's move on to the questions that I ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? That's an impossible question. (laughs) When I looked at it this morning, I thought, comic books. Interesting. (laughs) You know, Bambi. The first comic book I ever got was Bambi. And then I could skip ahead to the 60s and say Giacometti. I adored. I love Giacometti. You know, you change. Artists change over the years, so I no longer look at Giacometti that way. I look at different people, many people. You know, I grew up in New York, so we went to the Met and to the MoMA. And I remember Cezanne's The Bather and Rousseau in the next room. I remember the layout of the MoMA. So it's a long list. We could go on and on. (laughs) I was also really inspired by South American art and Mexican art because um, of various family members who were interested in those things. Also, from the very beginning, I was inspired well, starting in the 60s, say, by Minoan and Mycenaean art. 
I was always interested after that initial phase of going to how art began, you know, ancient art. So how did Greek art begin? Mycenaean, Minoan. And the Minoan art interested me because women were diving in the sea with the porpoises. So, you know, different inspirations like that that really affected me. Well, it clearly really affected you. And it's, it's fascinating to see the imagery in moving off the land because that includes images that very closely relate to that. So it's a way that, you know, those images have stayed with you and you're employing them still and revisiting them still. Yeah, they, they get in your brain. Like I've studied a lot of spiritual art, you know, but I don't have to talk about it anymore. So once you put it all in your brain, it just becomes part of your thinking and you don't have to explain it anymore or explain it to yourself even just becomes part of your aesthetic. That's really fascinating. And in terms of historical artists, which do you sort of consciously turn to the most today? I mean, Italian Renaissance painting was a big influence for me. I studied art history and studying Renaissance painting to look at the flat surface and how the Renaissance painters made space on a flat canvas. Yeah, that interested me because space is probably one of my main concerns, how to deal with space and how to construct within a space. So I don't look back at the Italian painters anymore. I looked at them so much. In terms of historical artists and particularly historical movements, I saw an interview that you did with Marina Warner in which there was a very interesting beginning of a conversation that didn't go much further about surrealism. And you declared you see yourself as something of a surrealist. I wonder if you might expand on that a bit. Well, I certainly was interested in surrealism and in surrealist artists and that whole period. You know, that was an important time for me in New York and after the war. But the idea of putting things together and juxtaposing disparate thoughts and sequences, that's what interests me about surrealism, that you don't have to make sense in the same way. Mm -hmm. Logic, you know, and that's what interests me. And I do think I am a surrealist in a way. I deal with the kind of dream landscape and so on. Do you feel that your drawing has any relationship to that kind of unconscious, automatic drawing that many of the surrealists were engaged in? Well, I wouldn't call it that, but probably it does, yeah. But I usually draw things. Some years ago I made these drawings with ink and ice, you know, pouring the ink on the paper and putting ice and then squidging it around and making a drawing that way. So I try to find different ways of making a drawing and it might have a relationship to surrealism, but I don't call my drawings surrealist, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You can absorb some of those ideas without ever actually having to give it that sort of name. That's right. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I think that lately, and I only found him a few years ago, is Kerry James Marshall. I love his work. Mm. But I don't go to that for inspiration. That's, that's his work. It's, mm. I don't think that I should be directly inspired by it, but it's something that I love to see, and it is inspiring. One of the things that I was struck by is that when the tanks at Tate Modern opened, there was a show by Sung Hwan Kim, and I know he's a collaborator of yours, and I know that you visited to see that show there. And it seemed to me that there was a really rich relationship that he had with your work. There is, you know, he was my student for many years. Right. That's one thing. I met him when he was at Williams studying mathematics, and I gave a course in uh, video at Harvard, and he came and took it. And then he immediately decided he wanted to be an artist. I liked his work. He was so, I hate to use the word talented, but he is. <laughs> and so he went to Skowhegan and so on and so forth. And we became very good friends. And we're about to do a collaboration. I mean, we've kept in touch. And we find each other inspiring, I think, definitely. So we're about to do a 
drawing collaboration in Amsterdam in June. And I think it's the first formal collaboration that we've done, actually. I have to say, frankly, I don't pick up on everybody. I don't want to be inspired by everybody. But I could love something. Yes, exactly. And I think that's one of the things about that question that we found in this podcast. One of the things I find intriguing about it is that, of course, you mentioned Kerry James Marshall, and you could look at your work next to Kerry James Marshall's and and say there's nothing formally in common here. And I think that that's the thing is that the wonderfully rich nature of contemporary art means that there's so many ideas floating around and so many different forms that art takes that actually it's a wonderfully rich field and there doesn't have to be affiliations as there were in the past, I guess. Well, I'm very inspired by my performance and also my work in general has been very inspired by Japanese, the no drama, Mm. which I saw in 1970 in Japan. That really inspired me. I say that's one of my big inspirations. And I go back to that often, the poetry of it. The fact that when I first saw it, I was developing my form and the fact that it was a kind of musical form, you know, because it's dance and movement and music and very simple use of props. It interested me a lot. That really did influence me. And you've made those drawings which are based on those wonderful diagrams that accompany no theatre, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. So how directly were they inspired? Because I think I've seen your drawings without seeing what they were based on or related to. Well, there's not to. very many of those drawings. I haven't done that. But in relation to the no drama, there are books, there are old books, paper books, that have diagrams of the way they move in the stage. Mm. And again, I don't really directly copy that ever in my performances, although maybe I will, <laughs> now that you've brought it up. But um, yeah, I've tried to copy them, and they're beautiful drawings. But I don't do that very often either, but every once in a while. They're hard to copy, they're so beautiful. But it's so interesting, this idea of you, you, know, you having a script, or the idea of notation in terms of choreography and so on. The idea of where the kind of work lies in relation to scripts or to structures that are put in place and how much happens outside of the kind of formal presentation of it, if you like. It's true, but I don't record my movements the way the Japanese have recorded theirs in the no drama. I don't move that way. I don't have diagrams of movement in that way. No, but the drawings are kind of a different diagram that emerges from that, the, the sort of residue, if you like. Yeah. Well, I used to, actually, when I first began, I used to make drawings of my outdoor pieces, how we moved in the space and so on. Oh, that's fascinating. Let's talk about your studio, what you have around you. I've seen videos and, and photographs of your studio and there's so much in the studio. What do you have around you and what do you have pinned on the wall and so on? Well, over the years, I mean, it was in the tape show too. I collect, you know, I'm a collector of, you might call it folk art, but I collect all kinds of things, sometimes just because I love it and sometimes because I could use it in the piece I know I could in some way, although I don't know how. But in my studio, just as far as other artists, I could just tell you, you know, people give me things. So I have a Seth Price piece. I have a Rebecca Quitman piece. I have Lawrence Wiener drawings on the wall. I have June Leaf's drawings and objects. I have Richard Serra's drawings. I have a Pat Steer drawing. And that's just some of the people that are on my walls. And then also my objects are all around me. Yeah, there's some rabbits back there that I got someplace, and I've cut out photographs of objects that I use in my work. And another source was Egyptian art, really inspired me from the very beginning. First of all, the myths, and then the flatness, and the kind of simplicity of representation. 
Absolutely. And of course, some of that emerged in Lines in the Sand, didn't it? You used elements of that kind of Egyptian-related, obviously so much in there. Oh, yes, I made drawings over and over again of the pyramid and a sphinx. I became obsessed. I'd become obsessed with certain images, and I make them over and over again, and that was one. I was going to say that one of the things, and people can watch this online, there's footage of you drawing a pyramid from almost on a sort of a plan view so that you can see you from above. And it seems extraordinary to me how precise and how kind of naturally you're drawing that pyramid, almost automatic the way that you're doing it. It's this really beautiful process, actually. Well, you know, it's not overhead. It's a blackboard that's standing up, and I have a stick with a piece of chalk on the end of it. So I'm standing to one side. I draw with a stick often, with a device on the end of it. And I make my big floor drawings that way. And in that case, it was on a blackboard. But I practice a lot. So (laughs) I have to be precise. I practice. Absolutely. And well, it shows that sort of fluency that I'm talking about is so evident from that practice. And that's what's part of it. It's sort of enchanting, actually, watching it. One gets incredibly transformed by that process. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, I go to the Met. I go to MoMA the Whitney. I go to see shows in these museums. I like to visit the Met even when there's nothing special there. That's great. I also go to Artist Space where I have a close relationship and many galleries. I don't want to list them all. (laughs) Of course. Are there any collections that you have a kind of perhaps the Met or others that you need to return to sometimes? You have to go back there because you want to see something that's a sort of touchstone. Well, anything South American... And then whenever I go to another city like London or Paris or or Rome, I go to the museums. The Prado Mm. is one of my favorite museums. I'll go there over and over again whenever I go to Madrid, if I can. Yeah, I go to see as much art as possible. And when I go to a Biennale like Venice, it's my way of looking at art, you know, to go to these big shows. That's one of the reasons I like to be included, so I can look at what's going on now. Tell me about the experience of showing at the Prado, because as I say, you, you did a piece there moving off the land, which was staged in the Prado. How is it to perform in these sort of august historical institutions? I tried not to think about it that way, you know, because it would be too overwhelming. But the main thing was just the idea that I was performing in this fantastic place with such a great collection. And, you know, the Goya are fantastic in that museum. So, yeah, I try not to get that in my way, you know, being awed by something like that. I'm there to do my job, to do my work, and it doesn't really have a relationship to the great masterpieces, you know. It has a relationship to my work and to what I've looked at, but I don't change it because it's there. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 160 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are Project for Empty Space in Newark, New Jersey, and the Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum in Ridgefield, Connecticut. They join a host of US non-profit spaces with guides on Bloomberg Connects, including several where Joan Jonas has had solo shows or made performances, from PS1 in New York City to the MIT List Vision Arts Centre in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Deer Art Foundation's outpost in Beacon, New York. If you download the app, you'll find that the Deer Beacon Guide features a six-minute video in which Joan Jonas speaks about the three works in her current show at the Foundation, including The Shape, The Scent, The Feel of Things, which was commissioned as a performance for Deer Beacon in 2004 and now reappears there as a large-scale multimedia installation. 
to explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Well, I think as a child growing up, probably Mexico. There was a store in New York City that sold craft objects from South America. I think looking at Mexican art, South American art, probably strongly affected me. And then going to Japan, that had a huge effect on me. And seeing the Japanese culture, it's just sort of chance that I went there. I didn't go to China. That would have been the same thing, but I never went there. So going to Japan and experiencing the theater and also the gardens, that had a huge effect on me. I was going to ask you about that trip because it seems to be hugely important that not only did you experience theater on that first trip, but you also bought the porter pack at the same time. And it seems this wonderful, wonderful thing that you, on the one hand, encountered an affordable medium at the same time as seeing an inspiring form. It seems that wonderful that those two things ultimately came together in your work. I could have gotten a porterback. I could have ordered it in New York, but it was easier. I was there in Japan. I went with Richard Serra. He was in a show. And while I was there, I got a porterback. And I could have gotten it in New York because there were artists in New York who had them at the time also. But it was a nice coincidence. And of course, as you know, the porterback radically changed our relationship to the media. I mean, I'm always telling people that you can't imagine what it was like for artists to be sitting in their studios with a porterpack and looking at themselves on the monitor. It was an amazing moment for everybody. Exactly, that transition from a film camera where, okay, you're inspired by celluloid and it's doing all sorts of exciting things, but you don't know yet what you're going to get and then suddenly being able to see it. I can't imagine it. And tell me about the buzz. You know, when you got your porter pack, were other artist friends immediately wanting to have access to it, talking to you about what it could do, etc. It wasn't just me. You know, at the same time, Peter Campus, Bruce Nauman, a number of other people. It happened to a number of people at that time. So it wasn't just people were looking at me and being inspired. I mean, I'm sure they were when I got back and started using and working with it, yes. But I worked with it in my loft for two years before I did a public performance or before I issued my first organic honey tape. Tell me about those two years. Was that about trying to find a way to work with it that somehow corresponded with your wider aims in terms of the art making? I wasn't trying. I was just, okay. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to work with this and see what happens. It was a natural process, and I began to perform for it, to act in front of it, in front of the camera, that is, while looking at myself on the TV. And um, that was just an important moment, yeah. Absolutely. And of course, in Organic Honey Vertical Roll, you're immediately conjuring this relationship between video and film. It's partly about that whole relationship, isn't it? Yeah, I have to say, because film had been a huge influence, the structure of film, When I began to performance, I related it to other mediums like poetry and film and used the structures of those other mediums, poetry, film, like the idea of one image after another. And the vertical roll is like frames in a film going by. So while I was making my early video when I was looking at video, I always thought in terms of film, how is this different from film? What's peculiar to video? And that's the way I was thinking about it. 
Let's talk about another place. Journeys are so important, aren't they, in, in your work? And, and it seems to me that Iceland has had a consistent importance to you over many, many years now. Did you go there as a deliberate act in terms of art making or was it coincidental that Iceland loomed up so large in your imagination? I went there because I read all the Icelandic sagas. A friend told me how beautiful they were. So I read them and then I found one that I really, it was about a woman, the only one that I know of about a woman. There may be others, a Laxadella saga. And so I wanted to go to Iceland at that moment and begin the work there. And I went with Stena Veselka the first time just to look at Iceland, which is a fantastic place, of course. And that was my introduction to it. And also to go with Stena, we took a trip along the south coast and she told me all about the fact they all believe in ghosts. That interests me, you know, because... I'm interested in the idea of a ghost of, and also in superstitions. And Iceland is very similar to Cape Breton in some ways, where I had been going in the summer. So it was a conscious beginning of a project. I didn't just go to Iceland. Yeah, I went to do a project. Right. And it seems to me that that relates so much to right the way through your art making, but also your life, because I know that as a child in New Hampshire, that nature, the environment, landscape was so important to you right from those moments, right? Yeah, it inspires me. I love nature. I love to be outdoors. And also, I'm very, I was very connected to my kind of Irish background and French background. And so I wanted to reflect that. And Cape Breton is a culture, Scottish-Irish, and with superstitions that are similar to ones in Iceland, actually. These islands, there's a relationship in the kind of Brittany also, and the music, the fiddle music is all across. And that inspires me and interests me. Let's talk about literature now. Which writers or poets do you return to? I don't know if it's about returning, but I could say my early inspirations were William Carlos Williams, Wallace Stevens, and then a friend of mine, Susan Howe, who's a poet, I've known her since we went to art school together. And James Baldwin is somebody one returns to over and over again. Anna Akhmatova, the Russian poet, Lorca, Mm. and the Japanese poets. The scripts of the no dramas is poetry. Right. I mean, that's just some, you know. I hadn't connected William Carlos Williams and his writing about the fall of Icarus, the Bruegel, with the fact that you'd referenced Icarus in your work is there a connection was it reading him that prompted you to think about that myth or you know I don't think so but I don't know I don't remember but you know I was reading a lot of things about myth and history and poetry and mythology mythology is the underpinning of all my early work the idea of the myth and the storytelling but it's not visible on the surface but it was my inspiration Let's talk about some of the other literary inspirations in the work. That Labyrinths by Borges, I know, was a tremendously important text to you. Well, that was my first, yeah. When I began to read Borges, which was in the late 60s, he had been recently, relatively speaking, translated into English. And I was immediately drawn to him and how he talked about mirrors. And that was why I started using mirrors, because in Labyrinths, he mentions mirrors in a very beautiful and He doesn't always deal with beauty. He deals with all aspects of reflection, that it's disturbing, that it's ominous, that it's reproducing, and so on. And so that was actually my very first performance piece, was based on Borges' labyrinths. I took all the mentions of the mirrors, and I memorized them, and I made a mirror costume, and that was the beginning. So that was Wind, right, in 1968? No, Wind was something else, but it was at the same time. Right. It was about nature, about wind. I was wearing my mirror costume in wind, 
of course. But wind wasn't really Borges. But it was at the same time. You could say it was Borges. I don't know. <laughs> and you said that James Joyce is a kind of anchor for you. What did you mean by that? James Joyce was a major figure for everybody I knew in those years. A great writer. And his stories are simply beautiful. And the writing is very beautiful. What can I say? I never based a work on Joyce. But I certainly was reading him and so were my friends. And it's portrait of an artist in particular that you've referred to, isn't it? Well, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, that book. Yeah, that was a big influence on me. But I didn't illustrate it. No, exactly. But it seems to me that the influence was a structural one. It was, it was as if you were looking at the condition of his work. Yeah. It's true, but in Portrait of the Artist, he uses mythology as a way to represent his thoughts and the situation. I think that was an influence on me. And then Haldor Laxness is another really intriguing reference, and particularly with his work under the glacier, and that has hugely informed works like Reanimation and, again, Moving Off the Land. Well, while I was in Iceland working on the Laxadella saga, which became the Volcano Saga, I found Haldor Laxness and read as much as I could. And, yes, I love his work. And that's when I began to think about him. And then a few years later, I began to work with his writing there's a particular sequence that you've picked up on, which is about bees and almost like the miracle of the activity or the life of a bee. Well, the way he writes about nature, I found it's very poetic and inspiring in that sense. And he makes a statement, which I can't quote, about the bees, about how miraculous they are. And, you know, isn't this the most amazing thing that a bee goes to the pollen and takes it? It's amazing. And he expresses that in a beautiful way. And of course, that connects to Emily Dickinson, who, in a way, it seems to me that Emily Dickinson is almost the definitive artist's poet, in a way, because so many artists have drawn in so many different ways, actually, from her. And I know that you quote her directly in Moving Off the Land, but it seems to me that, again, there's something of the condition of Emily Dickinson in lots of what you do. Maybe. I think it's because it's in the culture. And like my friend Susan Howe is very close to that aesthetic, Emily Dickinson, as are many. People. She's an amazing poet. Can you tell us about H.D. Hilda Doolittle? And it wasn't until I started researching your work that I'd come across Hilda Doolittle. But you actually don a mask and essentially perform as her in Lines in the Sand. Can you tell us more about Hilda? I think I came across her much earlier and then I came back to her. Okwe Enwizor invited me to do an epic, epic, he used the word epic, work based on a, an epic poem. And so I chose Helen in Egypt by Hilda Doolittle. She was American, and I'd been dealing so much with European artists and writers, and so I wanted to come back here to America. And Helen in Egypt is a very interesting story. And, you know, it's based on an old idea that Helen, she never went to Troy, she went to Egypt. And so that was interesting that she's always been blamed for the Trojan War. That fit into my whole idea about the female and, and the place of women, plus the fact that it's a beautiful poem, and Hilda Doolittle is a very interesting character and her work is beautiful also so lines in the sand is a long piece working with hilda doolittle it must be quite daunting when somebody like elkwee comes to you and says i want you to make an epic poem <laughs> I and mean, obviously it's a prestigious form in terms of you're in documentary it's going to be seen by lots of people it felt like that exactly the right moment to do that but yeah when he first approached you was that daunting i don't remember it being daunting but it's always daunting not just that it's always daunting I never know if it's going to be okay. You know, you don't think, oh, everything I do is great. No. <laughs> you have to work on it. 
and you have to plunge in and it's scary and that's good. And is the scariness, does it change once you've done a piece more than once or is the scariness always there and does it sort of almost have to be there? No, over the years, it used to be much more scary 40 years ago. So over the years, it's become much less. But there's always the pressure. And maybe the word scary is not challenging is maybe a better word now. And a little scary sometimes when you get stuck. All artists have this. Many artists do. Music's been such an important part of your work, but when you're in the studio, what do you listen to while you're working? Well, I used to listen to a lot of Bach, for instance, and folk music and contemporary music of people that I knew in New York. And then at some point, I don't anymore listen to music while I'm working. I find it distracting. I think it has something to do with the music stores closing, and you can't go buy records anymore. You can't go into a store and go through the... It's all online. That, I think, has affected me in not such a great way because I used to love and go and collect records and and CDs and so on and play them. I do have a big collection, but I find it now distracting. So I work with musicians in my work, and that's the music I listen to. Like Jason Moran is a major friend and musician and composer that I've worked with for the last... I don't know, eight, nine years. We're not working directly anymore, but we will when I have my show at MoMA. So I'm introduced to music through my work, often. Yeah, and I was lucky enough to see one of your performances with Jason. And I was really intrigued that he said there were times when you asked him to sort of almost, rather than sort of complimenting, to not get too sentimental and to hit against what you were doing. And I found that really interesting in terms of the dynamic between performer or video maker and live performance in, in terms of music. Tell me more about that. Well, when we first worked together was um, the shape, the scent, and the feel of things at Dia Beacon. It was incredibly luxurious. We had six weeks where we went there, you know, for five days a week and just worked together. I had worked out all the videos and the space and the objects and props and the performers, but not the movements. And so when we began to work together then, his music inspired my movements and my movements and the videos inspired the way he played and what he played. Jason is a fantastic musician and composer. I didn't want the music to be romantic. You know, that's just my general feeling. So we had a dialogue, and we worked together in that way. I said I didn't want it to be too, you know, romantic. I wanted it to be a little sharp and tough and disturbing, yeah. But then sometimes it's very beautiful, often. Extremely beautiful and it's tremendously moving as well. Yeah. Again, that's one of the things when you're aware that live music is being set to imagery, which is already on tape, as it were, and then you performing, there's this extraordinary, occasionally these kind of transcendent moments. So to what extent can you kind of aim for that? And to what extent is it just something that you, you can hope can happen? But, you know, I don't aim for it. For me, I can't consciously aim for something like that. It just has to happen. It's a journey. Yeah, absolutely. And so you set conditions where it may happen effectively. I don't even think about if it will happen because I think that's bad luck, frankly. Then you want it to be. It may not happen. 
he obviously comes from a jazz tradition to a certain extent and therefore you know his ability to improvise seems to me to be absolutely crucial and I, I wondered about again as you're in those performances how much is your performance playing off his in an improvisatory way even though you of course you, as you say you have a script quite a bit my energy relates to his energy and we do these duets together which the fact that he's a jazz musician and uses improvisation really affected me also because of course everybody improvises to get to a certain point but I never improvised in a live performance with Jason I don't improvise exactly but I'm affected by the dynamics of his playing and every time we do that piece together or a piece again repeating it I respond to the way he kind of he doesn't change the say the melody or the tune or the theme, the dynamics change because he's a jazz musician. And that inspires me and drives me, you could say. Let's talk about other media. And I particularly wanted to focus on film here. Which films influence your work? Oh, just the whole history of film. What can I say? From the very beginning. I mean, I love film. And I was living down the street from Anthology Film Archives, Jonas Mikas's space where they showed films continuously, the history of film. Also, they never used dubbed films. It was always the original version. And I went often, and I really studied film on my own. I didn't go to school about film or anything, but I studied it. And all the French, German, foreign films influenced me. We have a very different situation now as far as film goes. I mean, I go to film as much as I can if there's something interesting. I just looked at a Derek Jarman film hmm. last night. I saw them all a long time ago, but I'm thinking of looking at all of them again. Just not because I think I might. Well, they inspire you because they're beautiful. Not that I might use it, but just because I'm interested in film, Japanese films. I was very influenced by Ozu. Not directly. I don't use Ozu in that way. But uh, I've looked at every Japanese film I could find on this criterion site that's the only good thing about the pandemic was looking at films endlessly but before that i went to films all the time and dovshenko was a big influence all those early russian films because of your interest in mirrors i'm always interested in jean cocteau and his relationship with the mirror and i wonder did you see those amazing effects yes i mean of course i saw cocteau it didn't really make me change my work, but of course I saw Cocteau. And the mirror itself has that effect on people. Of course, in Cocteau, going back to Borges and the, the relationship with something terrible about the mirror, in Cocteau it's the sort of negotiation with the death world and so on. Yes, yes, yes. In terms of seeing those early films, and particularly I remember that you said that you were engaging with silent film quite a lot in those early days, because of course video gave you the option of having sound alongside the image and I wondered how much that changed your relationship with the history of film to a certain extent because you had a medium that also produced sound. Um, it didn't really change my relationship to film because it was all parallel process looking at films and then thinking about video a little bit later. I mean the thing about silent films is you look at the image sound kind of distracts you in a way. Peter Hutton, I don't know if you know his work, made silent films and I remember talking to him about that, that you notice and think about different things when there's silent and when you have sound, because it adds another dimension. It distracts, but also adds and completely transforms. So sound changes the image. And it's something you can play with and work with. 
Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Well, I try to draw and then I walk. <laughs> Those are my rituals. And I walk my dog. <laughs> and uh, Your dogs have been such an important part of your work, of course. Yeah. And in terms of drawing, the act of drawing in terms of, would you go into the studio and sit down and say, I have to make a drawing a day? Or is it much less sort of rigid than that? It's less rigid, but I have done that. And I'm about to do that again. Because this last two years have been weird. So I didn't really do that so much. But I will. That's interesting. So as you say, you were watching lots of films, but the drawing didn't feel so necessary somehow whilst you were absorbing all that kind of material. I mean, I draw a lot when I'm making a work, when I'm making a new piece. So, no, I did a big project about drawing for a Shanghai Biennale. I was commissioned to do a piece about water. The subject of the Biennale was about water. And so I uh, made like 75 drawings about underground river systems that we never see. And I base the drawings on scientists' renditions. So I have a big installation of 75 originally drawings. They're in the show in uh, Munich right now, that piece. It's like a, a construction of hanging drawings. And before that, I was making, you know, I get obsessed with certain subjects. So I was making fish drawings over and over again. So it's just that the last year I haven't done that so much. But that's my most recent, in relation to the ocean, drawing What's in the ocean? If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? Oh, my God. I find that very hard to answer. There's so many that I could live with. I think that you change also. I used to look at Titian, for instance, not in relation to my work to be inspired by it, but I used to go to museums and look at Titian. Recently, I was looking at Kerry James Marshall, some of his paintings. There's so many. I think it's so hard to answer a question like that. And lastly, what is art for? I think art is the most positive thing we have right now in this world. Art gives us inspiration. It gives us life. It draws us into it. And the world has always been difficult and violent and so on. And art, lately, I've been thinking it's the most positive thing we have, art. It's what saves us right now. Joan, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Joan Jonas, Moving Off the Land, is published by Walter Koenig and is €25. Joan Jonas is at the Haus der Kunst in Munich in Germany until the 26th of February and she's at the Dia Art Foundation in Beacon, New York, until the 13th of March. Her retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York opens in the spring of 2024. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Joan Jonas. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.